Well, this morning we are continuing with our study through the book of Acts. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 13, uh, starting in verse 13, and we're going to go all the way to verse 41 this morning. We're in the part of the book when the gospel is beginning to be purposefully shared outside of Palestine and into the Roman Empire at large. In the first part of Acts, the focus was Jerusalem. The Lord did great things in strongly establishing the Jerusalem church, saving thousands of people, especially through the ministry of the apostles. And then when persecution broke out, much of the church, the majority of the church was scattered. But as they scattered, they continued to speak of Jesus as being the Christ. And they did that throughout Judea, throughout Samaria. Initially, the focus continued to be just on those who were Jewish. But then the Lord made it very clear that he wanted the gospel to go to the Gentiles as well. So, soon after, a church was established in Antioch of Syria, a predominantly Gentile church. So, the Jerusalem church then sent Barnabas to help them. And he was so encouraged by the evidence that he saw of God's grace in their lives that he actually went to get Saul, who was from Tarsus, lived in Tarsus, to bring him back with him to Antioch to help in the ministry there. And they soon became part of the leadership of that church. Well, at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, we see the leadership of the church at Antioch gathered in prayer. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to them that they needed to send Barnabas and Saul out to further reach the Roman Empire with the gospel. So the church in Antioch, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, then sent them out. Well, the first place they went, we saw last week, was to the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's homeland. They traveled uh, across the island and always began by speaking first in the synagogues that they saw. In Paphos, they were able to share with Sergius Paulus, who was the proconsul of Cyprus. And it was in attempting to share the gospel with him, which he asked them to do, but it was as, he was, as they were seeking to share with him, they ran into significant opposition from a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And this man, who was also involved in sorcery, was doing all that he could to keep the proconsul from hearing and responding to the gospel that Barnabas and Saul were sharing with him. Well, the Spirit of the Lord enabled Paul to call out Bar-Jesus as not a son of Jesus, but a son of the devil, who was an enemy <coughs> of true righteousness. He, Paul pronounced God's judgment on him. <coughs> and then the Lord caused a temporary blindness to come on uh, Bar-Jesus uh, because this man's heart had been blind to the truth. Well, through all this, the Lord gave Sergius Paulus a clear understanding of the gospel, and he was just amazed <coughs> excuse me, at what, at what Barnabas and Saul were telling him about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the gospel just captured his heart and his soul. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. I mean, just a great way to begin and actually ultimately end then this, this part of the missionary journey that began in uh, Cyprus. When the verses that we're considering this morning, the mission team moves on to the next city. So I want to start just by looking at the first couple of verses. Just look at verses 13 and 14. <coughs> it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But, son, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Several things going on here. First, uh, we notice that they actually sail north to the province of Pamphylia. That was on the south coast of Asia Minor. It's in located in modern-day Turkey. Second, we notice that Paul is now the leader of the mission team. He speaks here of Paul and his companions there in verse 13. Up to this point, Barnabas' name has always been first. But once they leave Cyprus, Paul is now seen as the leader. This may be because uh, of Paul's clear commission from God to reach the Gentiles, and they are going into areas that are definitely more heavily Gentile. But it says so much about Barnabas that he was humble enough to feel like he did not have to be in charge. Uh, Especially when you think about that he was the one who had been a Christian longer. He was the one who had actually helped Paul get established and accepted in Jerusalem and in Antioch. He probably also had more experience in leading than Paul did. But Barnabas also recognized the call that God had placed on Paul's life. So therefore, he seems to readily defer to him. Every time we see Barnabas in Scripture, he demonstrates just such Christian character. He's such a great example of living out the Christian faith. And third thing that we see in verse 13 is that John Mark decided to leave Paul and Barnabas and go back to Jerusalem. We are never told why he did that. Um, maybe he was not happy about Paul taking a leadership role because Barnabas was his cousin. Maybe the mission work was more grueling, more challenging than he thought it was going to be. Maybe it was just something, maybe he was sick. Maybe there was some injury. Maybe there was some uh, logical explanation like that. But whatever it was, we will see in the last few verses of Acts 15 that Paul felt like John Mark left them unnecessarily that it was wrong, it was not right for him to leave. So whatever it was, Paul did not think he made the right decision. So that's, that'll come in later. Well, we see that they have come to the city of Pisidian Antioch. <coughs> it's called Pisidian Antioch because it was near the border of Pisidia. And to differentiate it from Antioch of Syria, which is where the church was that we talked about, And so once again, they begin by going to the local synagogue, and we see that they were asked to speak. So in these verses that follow, we get our most extensive example of one of Paul's sermons. Um, I was originally thinking to try to divide it up into a couple weeks, but as I the more I started working with it, I thought, I think it's better if we just do the whole sermon this morning. So it's a longer reading than what we normally do, um, just so you know. So, pick up at verse 15, and we're going to read through verse 41. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the, pe- and, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. 
After these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before, had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, Why do you suppose that I am not, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not go and undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be free through the law of Moses. Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Well, the first thing I want to point out from these verses is this. The gospel is such a glorious is such glorious news that it must be shared, carefully heard, and rightly responded to. Shared, carefully heard, and rightly responded to. With this example of Paul's preaching, we get an idea of how he approached a largely Jewish audience. He gives careful attention to details to make sure he includes all that needs to be said. And we can see a real heart for the people who do not yet know the gospel. He desperately wants the, these people to understand it and to receive it. He begins in verse 16 by getting the people's attention and addressing them as men of Israel and you who fear God. So the men of Israel, of course, are people who are Jewish. But Paul also recognizes there are Gentile God-fearers who are also present. And then he calls on them to listen. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. So his message is important, and he wants them to pay close attention. Well, partway through the message, in verse 26, he does kind of the same thing again. 
uh, he says, um, brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. So once again, he calls their attention, uh, addresses them, and says, listen, and he's kind of kind of appealing to them in a, in a personal way. He ends the message in verse 40 with actually saying, you need to take heed about the things that have been spoken. So he's exhorting them to really be careful and take heed. The gospel is a message of great hope and must be taken seriously. It's got to be responded to in faith. So he actually ends with a warning to these people. So these verses help us to see that Paul really takes his responsibility to share the gospel very seriously, and he wants those who hear what he has to say to do the same. He really wants them to listen and respond. Okay, let's begin to look at the things that he includes in this message at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. So first we note that it is God who has provided salvation. It has been revealed in the law, the prophets, and the history of Israel. Revealed in the law, the prophets, and the history of Israel. It was customary uh, for there to be a reading from the law and the prophets as part of the worship services in the synagogues at this time. We see that in verse 15, and that's what happened. When they refer to the law, what they're referring to is the first five, is the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the, that's the law. Then, in the Jewish Bible, when they refer to the prophets, the prophets actually begin with Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then includes all the major and minor prophets. All that's included in the division known as prophets. So you can see there's quite a bit of history. It's called Law and Prophets, but there's quite a bit of history included in those books as well. So when Paul spoke, he referred to things from both the law and the prophets. This was his strategy, and, and Barnabas as well, in addressing the Jews. They shared, of course, a common belief that the Old Testament books were God-inspired scripture. And his plan would be then to speak of how Jesus Christ fulfilled the things that were promised and prophesied in the law and the prophets. Well, Paul starts with a summary of some of the key events in Israel's history. So he points out, these, this is in verses 17 to 21, a number of things here. First, that God chose Israel and revealed himself to and through them. He first reminds them in verse 17 that God chose the people of Israel. They didn't choose God. He chose them, not because of anything special about them. He just chose them because of his mercy. He chose to show his mercy on these people. And because of that, the people of Israel had great advantages that other peoples did not have. He then moves quickly to the time when they were in Egypt which at first was a blessing to them. But later, the Egyptians became suspicious and fearful of the, of the Israelites and enslaved them. And when that takes place, Paul says uh, that God, with an uplifted arm, led them out of Egypt. So, of course, he's referring to how the Lord powerfully delivered the Israelites out of the Egyptian bondage. This is a blessing that is really spoken of and they're reminded of all through Scripture. It was such a major deliverance. And then Paul refers to the time that the Israelites rebelled against God, would not go into the promised land as he directed them. And as a result, he says, the Lord put up with them as he calls them to wander in the wilderness for nearly 40 years. After that, though, they did go into the land. The Lord gave them victory, gave them the land as an inheritance. In verse 19, 
Paul says that this time in Egypt, in the wilderness, and the initial period of conquest of Canaan took about 450 years altogether. And all this time, the Lord was caring for his people in a way that was unique to Israel. He was watching over them. Then the Lord raised up judges to give leadership and deliver them from enemies. But there came a time when the people of Israel were not content with this arrangement. They decided they wanted a king like the other nations around them had. So in verse 21, Paul reminds them that God gave them Saul, who ended up ruling as king for 40 years. And Paul alludes to the fact that Saul was disobedient to the Lord when he says in verse 22 that God removed him. So this brief historical introduction taken from the law and the prophets is a reminder of how the Lord chose Israel, watched over them as a people, continued to reveal himself to them in spite of their responses to him, which were often not what they should have been. And then Paul makes a very key transition in the message. He points out next that it was in the context of their rejection of the Lord that he promised a Savior through David. He promised a Savior through David. Look again at verses 22 and 23. After he had removed him, removed Saul that is, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So God is the one who sovereignly removed Saul. He's also the one who sovereignly raised up David to be king. And Paul then quotes from a brief section from 1 Samuel 13 and a brief section from Psalm 89 to sum up what God did when he raised up David. David was not a perfect man by any means, but he was a man after God's own heart, and the Lord used him in great ways. Well, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that he would cause one of his descendants to reign forever. Paul tells us that it was in fulfillment of this promise that God brought to Israel a Savior, and that Savior was Jesus. Of course, the name Jesus means the one who saves. Every Jew and every God-fearing Gentile in the synagogue that day knew about the promise that God made to David. I mean, there was a great hope of someone that God would send to sit on David's throne. That was a very important promise to them. And that's the promise that Paul is talking about. So from there, Paul begins to focus on the coming of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So he makes it very clear in point number three that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of the promises of God. We see in verse 24 that the first thing that Paul talks about regarding the coming of Jesus Christ is that John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ by calling for people to repent. Paul doesn't focus on the birth of Christ. Instead, he speaks of the beginning of his public ministry. Of course, the Lord sent John to prepare the way for Christ. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance. People of Israel were being called to acknowledge their sin. They would be called to turn away from their sin. And the baptism of John was symbolic of their being cleansed of their sin. And they would then be ready to believe in, to receive Jesus as the promised Messiah. That was John's ministry. Paul also tells about the fact that there were people wondering about 
and even asking John if maybe he was the Messiah. And he always told them very emphatically that he was not. He was just doing the ministry that God had given him. And with all the accolades that people were giving to John, he always remained humble. He knew that he was not even worthy to untie the sandal of the Messiah. Well, in verse 26, Paul begins to move into the more intense part of the message. He's going to speak about how the Jews responded to Jesus. So once again, he makes an address to the people sitting in front of him, just like I, like I mentioned earlier. Verse 26, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. So he wants the Jews, the God-fears, to realize that he is giving more than just a history lesson. The message that he is sharing is the message of their salvation that they desperately needed to hear and respond to. So let's look now at verses 27 to 28. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. So, here we see for our next point that the Jews in Jerusalem sinfully, sinfully fulfilled the prophecies when they rejected Jesus as the Christ and had him crucified. <clears throat> so, Paul very directly says that those living in Jerusalem, along with their rulers, were not willing to recognize that Jesus was the Christ. And more to the point, they were not willing to believe the things that were prophesied in the law and the prophets about the Messiah that they were pointing to Jesus as the Christ. They were rejecting the very prophecies they were reading in their synagogues every Sabbath. We don't know what the readings were from the law and the prophets on that particular Sabbath when Paul and Barnabas were there at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. But the fact that Paul is referring to these readings, these readings of the law and the prophets, is making a very direct and applicable application to them, uh, to, to the people that he's talking to. And then Paul says something very interesting. He says, even though those in Jerusalem rejected Jesus as the Christ, they rejected the prophecies as referring to him, it was in their rejection that they were actually fulfilling those prophecies that they rejected. That was not, it was not their intention at all to fulfill those prophecies. They didn't believe those prophecies. They didn't believe they referred to Jesus. But it was through their sin that they fulfilled the utterances of the prophets. He tells his hearers that the Jews and their rulers had no grounds whatsoever to put Jesus to death. But they asked Pilate to execute him anyway. And then Paul says again, that they, had fulfilled, that, 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 that they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Christ when they had him put to death on the cross. Now, Paul does not give us detail on which prophecies from the law and the prophets he's referring to that they fulfilled. But let me just share some of the things that were prophesied about Jesus' death that would fit here. And there's more that we could share, but let me just share a few of them. Isaiah 53, for example, 
says the Messiah would be despised and rejected of men. That's just what he's been describing. Messiah would be despised and rejected of men. They fulfilled that. Isaiah 53 also says that he was like a sheep that was silent before its shears. It means that Jesus did not try to defend himself when they were uh, falsely accusing him. It also says that he would be cut off from the land of the living in Isaiah 53, and that word cut off signifies a violent kind of death. More specifically, the fact that he was executed on a cross, or more literally, on a tree, is a reference to Deuteronomy 21. And that signifies not only a crucifixion, but a shameful kind of death, a shameful death. And it was the fact that the Jewish leaders gave Jesus into the hands of the Romans that accounted for his being crucified. The Jews did not execute by crucifying. They executed by stoning. So in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, they had to give him over to the Romans to use the Roman way of executing, which end up fulfilling the prophecies. In Psalm 22, we see that the Messiah would be mocked by the people as he died. The priest did that while he was on the cross. The priests were mocking him. We also see that he would be deserted by his friends, his Jewish friends, the disciples. That happened. We also see in that psalm, in Psalm 22, that they would, be, that they would cast lots for his clothing. We see in Isaiah 53 again that he would be pierced. We see in Psalm 69 that he would be offered sour wine while he died. We also see in Isaiah 53 that though his grave was assigned with wicked men, he was with a rich man in his death, and that refers to his burial by Joseph of Arimathea. Many of these prophecies, and there's others we could mention, but many of these prophecies the Jews directly fulfilled because of their sinful rejection of Christ. Others were fulfilled because they gave them into the hands of the Romans, and the Romans just did the way they normally did when they would execute someone. And as they did that, which included gambling for the clothing, uh, piercing, make sure they're dead, those, those things were not really unique to Jesus. That was the way that those was all part of the Roman way of executing. So the fact that the Jews gave Jesus over into the hands of the Romans end up fulfilling the prophecies that they were hearing in their synagogues and rejecting. As we saw Peter do in Acts, Paul is sharing a contrast here between the sovereign decrees of God and prophecy and the sinful actions of men and how God in his sovereignty decreed all that was going to take place, men and their sinful responses fulfilled exactly what he said. They had no intention of honoring God, but they did, so to speak, by fulfilling the prophecies. So Paul is doing the same thing. Peter did this as well. He pointed this out multiple times when we see examples of his sermons to the Jewish leaders. I think you can probably just beginning to imagine this is going to make an impression on the group of people that he's talking to who have just read the laws and the prophets themselves. And so he's making this very direct application again to them. He wants them to see this. This is not just an interesting history lesson. 
This is your salvation that he was talking about. But, of course, there's more. Next point is that God raised Jesus from the dead, as the prophets said he would. After condemning the Jews for their part in the death of the promised Messiah, Paul quickly moves to the good news. He says in verse 30, God raised him from the dead. He was a Savior who not only died, but was also resurrected. And then Paul points out, the Lord appeared to a number of people after his death with a special focus on the disciples. So there were eyewitness, eyewitnesses to these things, eyewitness testimony to, what, to that fact that these things happened. And in fact, Paul says that those who saw the risen Christ were actively even now witnessing to that reality because most of the apostles were still alive at that time. Then Paul says in verse 32 that he and Barnabas were preaching that same good news of the risen Christ. And once again, it's not merely historical facts to be thinking about, but it's the good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners to bring about their salvation. It's the good news that was prophesied and promised to their forefathers and is now being offered to them. Now, after speaking of the resurrection of Christ, Paul continued to make reference to what the law and the prophets had to say about that, about the resurrection. But now he moves into not just the books that were, that were included in the law and the sections of the law and the prophets. He now moves into a book that's, included, that's connected with the writings, which is the Psalms. So first he makes reference to Psalm 2, verse 33. He says, God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, we know that the Son of God was and is eternally begotten. There has never been a time in which Jesus Christ has not existed, in which the Son of God has not existed. But Paul is using this quote to refer to Jesus' resurrection, eternally begotten by the Father, and that he's including his resurrection and his enthronement to the right hand of the Father in that, from, the, what, from what is said in Psalm 2. And then he brings in more prophetic evidence for the resurrection in verses 34 to 37. He says, As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he has served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. So in verse 34, Paul is referring to Isaiah 55 verse 3. The sure blessings of David were to come through a descendant of David's who would reign forever. That means he would have to live forever if he's going to reign forever. So when this descendant died, he would not stay dead. He would not return to decay in the grave. So in order to get the holy and sure blessings of David that Isaiah 53 talks about, David's descendant would have to rise from the dead. Paul says that's a, that's a prophecy of the resurrection. Now, to further confirm this truth, Paul then quotes from Psalm 16, another psalm of David. In this psalm, God inspired David to write, 
that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. Again, when he died, that means he would not remain in the grave. Peter, of course, used this same passage in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he also used the same argument that Paul does in verses 36 to 37. What he says there is that David could not have been talking about himself because it was well known that after David had served his generation, he died, he was buried, and therefore his body decayed. So David could not have been writing about himself as that holy one. Instead, this was a prophecy referring to the resurrection of the Messiah. So in order for the gospel to be truly good news, the Savior must not only die for sinners, he must also be resurrected. He must conquer sin and death, and that's exactly what happened. Well, in Paul's next point, he describes the great blessings that come to sinners through Jesus Christ. He tells us this. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that one is forgiven of sin and legally justified before God. Once again, all these things happened in history, but Paul is not just giving a history lesson. He is speaking of the blessings of eternal salvation. So look at verses 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Notice again here, Paul is making a direct appeal to those who are listening. He says, let it be known to you, brethren. And you can just kind of see him looking at people as he's saying, this is for you. This message is for you. He wants them to hear this good news. And then in verse 38, we see that the first blessing that comes through Jesus Christ is the blessing of forgiveness. Paul has illustrated clearly the sin of those who rejected Jesus as the Christ. They conspired to have the promised Messiah, the Son of God, put to death. I mean, just an awful sin. But Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners. We've all committed really high treason against God, against one true and living God, whenever we sin. Every sin is an act of high treason against the sovereign God. And because of that, we all deserve condemnation from Him. He hates all wickedness. But the Lord poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God on our behalf. I mean, it's just such an amazing grace. But as a result, all who will believe on him have those sins, those acts of treachery against God are completely forgiven, completely wiped away. They're removed, the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that anyone can be forgiven. It's a full, complete, eternal forgiveness that Paul is proclaiming to them. But he doesn't stop with forgiveness. In verse 39, he speaks of an additional blessing. It's tied into forgiveness, but, it, but it's an additional blessing. It's a blessing, again, that comes through Jesus Christ. He makes that clear, through him. It's for everyone who believes. So it's a blessing that every single person who believes in Jesus Christ for salvation experiences without exception. It's for everyone who believes. In the New American Standard, this blessing is described 
as the believer being freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The word for freed is translated justified in many other translations, ESV, for example, but others do as well. And the word means to be rendered righteous or to declare one to be just or righteous. That's what happens to every believer in Christ. Every believer is legally declared by God, the ultimate judge of the universe, legally declared by God to be righteous before God based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's our standing. This applies to every single believer. That's our standing before God if we're believers. It's being freed from having to obey the law to be righteous before God. That's something no one can ever accomplish on their own. It must be done for them, and it's only Jesus Christ is the one who could do that. And because He did that, He gives us that freedom, that justification before God that is our permanent standing, forgiven and righteous before Him. Here's how J.E. Alexander described it. He says, The gift thus offered was not only pardon or deliverance from punishment, but justification or deliverance from guilt, reaching to all the sins of all believers and affecting what the law in which they had trusted had completely failed to bring about through their own fault, not its own. I mean, these are glorious blessings of salvation. And, of course, Paul writes in much more detail on these in the book of Romans. Here he's just giving two verses on it. But glorious blessing, blessings that God brings about through Jesus Christ, blessings that are promised and prophesied in the law and the prophets. So after expounding on these great truths, Paul ends the message with a warning. Verse 40 and 41, he says, Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. So with these words, Paul is saying this. He's saying, Beware. There is great danger. There is great danger in rejecting this salvation that the Lord has so graciously provided. Now, he can especially say that to them because their Jewish brethren have for the most part rejected it when it was right there offered to them in the day of Christ, time of Christ. There's no other way to have your sins against the Lord forgiven. There's no other way to stand righteous before God. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And to reject this salvation is the greatest of dangers. Now, to illustrate this, Paul quotes from another prophet, Habakkuk. The verse he quotes is a warning from God about the attack from the Chaldeans that is coming on Judah for their sins against God. And there would be many who would not believe this attack was really going to happen, and that would be a tragic mistake. In the same way, Paul warns that many may hear this great message of salvation and not believe it. They would not believe that it was Jesus who actually fulfilled these great promises that were made in the law and the prophets. There is great danger in rejecting this salvation because there's no other way to be saved. The only other option is eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. But to believe in Christ brings the amazing blessings of salvation. 
Lord, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this insight into how the Apostle Paul preached to people in the first century. Thank you for the reminder of the importance of the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old, Old Testament. Thank you for, so much for the reminder of how significant those things are, how significant it was that you actually began this work by calling out Israel to be your people and did all these things through them. Thank you for that reminder. Lord, I also want to thank you for the reminder that Jesus is the one who fulfilled all these prophecies. All were directed and fulfilled in exactly what he did and what happened to him. Lord, I thank you just for this sure word that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And I want to thank you for the amazing blessings that come from it. We are forgiven. Every single one of us has sin in our life. There is not a single exception in this room. We all have sin, and they all need to be forgiven sins because even the smallest sin will condemn us to eternal hell. We all have sin, and we all need to have forgiveness. We are all far less than righteous, but you require that your people be righteous, and you provide that in Christ as a gift. We need not only forgiveness, we also need righteousness, and thank you that Jesus Christ secured both of them. Lord, help us just to delight in and just to be conscious, con regularly, constantly reminded of the fact that we are people who are forgiven and we are regularly, we are always standing before you as those who are righteous. If, you want, if you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, Paul gave you a warning. He said, beware. You have to be careful because there is a great danger in rejecting Jesus as the Christ, eternal danger. I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. A prayer like this would be a way to begin. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I have all kinds of things that have to be forgiven. I can't explain them away. I can't blame on somebody else. There are things that I have done. But I want to thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about this, about this commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. The hymn we're going to sing is, in number, is on page 387 if you'd like to use the hymnal. <laughs> 